This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From the land and sea they roam. Drinking wine in the great unknown. I'm Susanna Gold. I'm a wine educator, brand ambassador, writer, and marketer with a keen interest in both new and old world wines. My websites are vignettocommunications.com and susannagold.com. And of course, I have a wine blog, avinata.com. I'm particularly keen on Italy, where I lived for 15 years. While I do consider myself a wine geek, I love to look at wine from all aspects. One of the things I want to do with this podcast is delve into the many facets of the wine world, looking at it from multiple points of view. The podcast will have different series, and for the next 10 weeks, I will be discussing the topic of sustainability with my friend and fellow wine lover, geek, and expert, Sunny Gandara. Hi, everyone. I'm Sunny, and I've worked in multiple facets in the wine industry uh, over the past 15 years or so. Currently, I'm the U.S. brand director for Quechabella, which is an Italian winery located in Tuscany, and uh, I have a special interest in vegan and organic wines. I'm also the global wine director for Matthew Kenny Cuisine, which is a worldwide plant-based hospitality and restaurant group. Um, a trained chef and food and wine blogger on the side where my focus is on pairing wines with plant-based dishes. I want everyone to discover the enormous, exciting and delicious world of plants and the gastronomic pleasures you can get eating a vegan diet with a glass of wine, of course. Of course. I'm actually trying to go in that direction, Sunny, so it's thanks to you if I ever become vegan. We're here with Jason Haas from Tablas Creek in Paso Robles. Welcome, Jason. We're so excited you're here to join us for our fourth episode in our sustainability series. It's always great to view a topic from another point of view. We've got a lot of questions to ask you about your winery and your views on what's happening in California and around the world. So before we get into our questions, can you tell us a little about Tablas Creek and how your family got started in Paso with the varieties you grow? Sure. So Tablas Creek is a partnership. It's equally owned and run by two families. Uh, one of the families is my family. My dad got his start in the wine business as an importer uh, based in New York and then eventually Vermont. The other family is the Perrin family from Chateau de Beaucastel in Chateau Nifty Pop, um, whose wines my dad started importing into the United States in the late 1960s. So he and the Perrin brothers, who have, have run the Bocastel estate since the, the mid-1970s, would make trips around the U.S. introducing Americans, not just to Bocastel, but to Chateauneuf-du-Pap and the wines of the Rhone more generally. And every time they did that in California, they came back talking about how much it reminded them of the Southern Rhone and how surprised they were that in this clearly Mediterranean climate, they didn't see anybody focusing on those Rhone varieties that they knew and loved. And so um, by the mid eighties, they decided that they wanted to take a, take a crack at doing a kind of a riff on Chateau Nifty Pop in California themselves. And um, they put together a partnership, started looking and in 89 bought this 120 acre vineyard here West of Paso. Um, and if you'd ask them, at the time, if they thought they were going to end up in Paso, they would have said, no, no, Paso, where's that? Um, they would have told <laughs> yeah, you that they, they, they would have told you that they, they thought they were going to end up in Sonoma. But right. the combination of calcareous soils and enough rainfall to dry farm and a long enough growing season to, to ripen some pretty late ripening grapes um, was a combination they could only find here. 
so they, they bought this property. They imported cuttings of all the principal varieties from Bocastel, waited three years for them to clear a U.S. government-mandated quarantine, built a grapevine nursery here, started propagating vines, eventually got vines on the ground in 94, and had our first vintage in 97. So that's how we ended up in, in Paso Robles growing Rhone varieties, um, despite two families, one from France, one from the East Coast, and no history in Paso before this. That's such a great story and so unique in particular. Um, there's no other story from California that I know of that's exactly similar, right? No, it's, there's just so much backstory before before Tablas Creek ever got started. I mean, there's there was whatever, 25 years of the two families working together as importer and producer. And then the idea that there was a whole category of, of California wine that that really hadn't been explored to the extent that we thought it could be. And then, then to find the place, and it was a pretty rigorous, rigorous search. I mean, they spent four years looking on and off all over, all over California and then having to build the whole, really the whole winery from scratch, from the ground up, from the nursery to the vines, to the winery, to the, to the business. Yeah. It sounds very, very extensive. Um, I know Sunny has some questions that she wanted to ask you about uh, the type of viticulture that you do. Yeah, I was curious about what inspired you and your family to sort of be a trailblazer for organic and, and biodynamic viticulture in, in your area. Um, so we inherit the commitment to organic directly from what they do at Bocastel. So um, they've been fully organic since the 1950s. Um, it is kind of a central piece of their effort to to make wines that they feel represent the place in which they're grown. So minimizing what goes onto the vines from the outside for them allows them to, 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 to express that place, that, that terroir as clearly as they can. So that was our starting point. Um, it was the starting point of um, really kind of baseline organic, but we realized the more that we got into this, that what we were really trying to do is create a kind of a closed loop farm where we were just minimizing what we were putting on from the outside entirely organic or not. I mean, sure. You can bring in organic or organic fertilizer from the outside. It's better than bringing in chemical fertilizer, but even better, it seemed to us, like, can we make our own fertilizer with our own flock of sheep from our own cover crop? Like, that seemed like a, a better solution. So we've been trying to, to close one loop after another as, as best we can. And um, that led us from organic to biodynamic and eventually to regenerative organic in the last few years. Yeah, that actually led me to my next question. I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the regenerative organic certification and uh, what makes it different for those uh, listeners that may not be too familiar with that um, from organic and biodynamic. Sure. Um, so the it starts with the baseline of organic um so organic is essentially you can be organic if you uh, essentially don't do the things that aren't organic so basically if you don't use chemical fertilizers or pesticides or herbicides you're organic um and you and you go through the certification process um biodynamics is a little different biodynamics kind of builds on that same basic idea but it's more process-based where you're starting with the elimination of chemicals. And then beyond that, you are trying to, to build a, a farm holistically that renders even a lot of the 
organic interventions unnecessary. So you're building more biodiversity. You are um, creating polyculture instead of monoculture. You are focusing on things that actively improve your soil health, like um, the application, uh, <clears throat> the application of micronutrients or compost or compost tea or um, the habitat creation for beneficial insects, all these things that will, will mean that you just don't need to intervene. And then regenerative organic kind of combines, combines pieces of both of those and then adds on to that a measurement of a lot of your business practices. So in addition to having to show that you are um, not, I mean, that you're farming organically, that's the baseline. Um, and that you're doing all sorts of things that are improving your soil's health and fertility. Um, you also have to be showing that you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and fixing it into your soil. Um, you have to show that you are um, treating any animals who you have on your farm well. There's an animal, animal welfare pillar. And then finally, there's a farm worker fairness pillar that I think is really exciting where you are required to get audited to show that not only are you paying your farm workers a living wage and not only are their working conditions safe, but also you are creating structures where their feedback is encouraged and acted upon. And it's not just a hierarchical, you tell your viticulturist what to do, your viticulturist tells your vineyard manager what to do, your vineyard manager tells your crew what to do, and they do it. Um, so we did things like setting up weekly meetings with our, with our field crew kind of round table meetings where everybody, every, you go around the table, everybody talks about what the, what they've seen in the last week, everybody offers suggestions and you make sure that you are, you are incorporating those suggestions into the work that you're doing. So it's kind of a, a big picture look at, um, kind of what, what we feel like is the gold standard for farming. Hmm. So in terms of as a, as a uh, um, as a vegan, I'm uh, very interested in uh, the animal welfare portion. Like, what makes it different? What what is involved in that? Um, you know, when you say animal welfare, as it differs from traditional, I guess, animal husbandry. It's basically following the the, the five freedoms. So if you look at one of the one of the principal kind of guiding pillars of the animal welfare movement is essentially the five freedoms. So that's like freedom from fear, freedom to express normal behavior, freedom, uh, freedom from um, pain, freedom to move around. I can't remember. There's like, well, there, there, you can look up five freedoms. I don't have them all the tip of my tip of my tongue, but the idea is that essentially the, <clears throat> the animals that you have working on your farm are, are, are treated as well as they can be treated. Um, and it was interesting because when we got the, when we had the auditor come out for that, uh, for that audit, uh, we didn't, we, we never had an audit of our, of our animal program. We'd had the sheep on the, on the property for about a decade, but, uh, and we felt like we were doing pretty well, like that their, that their lives were good. But um, the, the animal welfare um, auditor came around and spent a couple hours driving around with our shepherd and, finish by saying, you guys are so far ahead of the gold standard for, for what I look for. You guys are doing great. This is, this, that was by far the easiest audit that we had in, in pursuit of <laughs> well, the regenerative sure. organic. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Actually. I have to say you're the only person I've ever spoken to who's talked about the five freedoms in terms of the welfare of the animals on their farm. So maybe that's me, or maybe you guys are just so far ahead, but it's, it's very interesting. And I, 
I kind of want to ask you a different question, and it's actually about terminology. So I know we're talking about regenerative agriculture. I use the word sustainable a lot. And for this series, I called it the sustainable series. And I wondered, does sustainable mean anything to you? Is it a term that you find is too generic? Um, what, what's your view on that? Yes, I think it's a term which is, which is too generic. Um, I mean, sustainability is critical, but it's not a regulated term. Anybody can claim it without having to do anything in particular. And the sustainability certifications are, a lot of them are pretty watered down. Um, so people define sustainability in lots of different ways. Most people include some sort of economic, like I'm making a profit as a part of your sustainability, which right. fine. I mean, that is big picture. If you're, if your business is losing money, that's not, that, that, that doesn't work long-term, but right. if that's something that people should get kudos for, like, I, it's not, it's not clear to me. So basically I, I think that sustainability is a really wonderful concept and there are people who are applying it in in really thoughtful and meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of people who are claiming it with really very little, um, very little action on the ground. So in, in the way I think about it, but I know Sunny hates the word. So that's why I'm always interested in our guests, how they feel about the term, because now I'm sort of beginning to maybe I'm the oddball out here. <laughs> but the way I think about it is the way the Italians use it, which is that sustainability also includes the social social responsibility portion sort of towards vineyard workers. I guess we don't use it that way in the United States, but so social responsibility toward vineyard workers, that is part of regenerative agriculture from what I understand from what you explained. Yeah, it is. is. It's one of the three pillars. There's basically a soil health pillar, an animal welfare pillar, and then a farm worker fairness pillar. So, so yeah, you have to be audited and show that you are achieving all of those things before you can get the, the ROC certification. Yeah, that's really, that's very interesting. Are a lot of um, wineries in America certified regenerative? Are you one of the few? We are the only one at this point because yeah, that's it's, what I it's such a I new program. I thought you were the only one, but I thought I'd just try to figure it out. You know, maybe <laughs> um, there's someone else. I thought it was just you. No, so basically the, the program was created only back in 2017. Um, okay. And it was in pilot stage until 2020. So we were invited to be a part of the pilot in 2018. And we spent the next two years working with the Regenerative Organic Alliance, helping give them feedback on the essentially the way that they had written the regenerative organic standards to apply to vineyards and wineries. Okay. Because ROC, it's is important to realize it's not a wine specific standard. It's a standard that, I mean, the, the initial push behind it came from Patagonia because they wanted to certify that their whole supply chain was farming in a way that was consistent with Patagonia's corporate values. So they created this nonprofit with its own board and tried to draft what they, they felt were the right big picture standards for sustainability so that um, regenerative farming in, in a way that reduced the demands on scarce resources that became carbon negative. So you're actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere that treated their people well, that treated the animals well. So mm-hmm. um, there are separate protocols for everything from row crops to aquaculture, to mm-hmm. chocolate, to cotton, to livestock. I mean, there's all of these different regenerative organic right. protocols. Right. And so we were, because we were doing so many of these things already, we were invited to be a part of the pilot program and help them 
craft those standards for, for wine. Uh-huh. Um, and so they announced the first round of awards, basically that the pilot program participants, the, the, the certifications that they got in August of last year and opened mm-hmm. it up for broader applications. So I, I'm told that they've gotten something like 30 vineyards or wineries who applied for this second year, the kind of the Got first it. year that it's really open. So yeah, right. we were the first um, and at the moment we're the only, but we're very much looking forward to having company. I bet. So it's it's an organization that was started by the owners of Patagonia, the founders of Patagonia, the owners of Patagonia. Is that right? Um, the organization yeah. is the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Um, mm-hmm. People want to check it out. It's at regenorganic.org. Regenorganic.org. So okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and the, it wasn't just Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's um, and the Rodale Institute were mm-hmm. involved in it from the very beginning. And there are, I mean, they have a board of a lot of different people on it across different disciplines, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a nonprofit um, for which a lot of the, the kind of initial startup money and energy came from Patagonia, but it's not Got a it. Patagonia, it's not mm-hmm. a Patagonia project. So they came looking for you. You didn't look for them. Yeah, they, they, they came looking for us. Um, and I guess the, the way that they found out about what we were doing is that um, our, our winemaker, Neil Collins, hosted a, uh, a Tublis Creek wine, Tublis Creek lamb dinner um, at a restaurant in Ventura. And <laughs> Yvonne Chenard, who's the, the founder, the owner of Patagonia, came to the dinner. Um, and wow. I guess they spent um, like an hour after dinner, the dinner was over, kind of huddled in the corner talking about farming. Huh. Um, and so there, there was another winery that had been a part of the pilot, initially the initial discussions of the pilot program, and they had to drop out for some reason at the beginning of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were looking for another winery to, to, to be a part of it, and they called us. That's so kind of coincidental, fortuitous, spontaneous, interesting how things come together, right? It's cool. And I mean, those sorts of dinners where you have, you can kind of tell that whole story of how, how having a, a biodiverse farm is better for, is better for the farm itself, better for the product that you're producing. Uh, They, they make pretty compelling test cases for the, the, the value of of creating this kind of regenerative farming. Um, so I guess I'm not surprised that given that somebody who's so centrally involved in the, in the, in the propagation of this movement came to the dinner that he wanted us involved, but it is kind of a, just a cool coincidence that that dinner ever happened. Right. And that he happened to be free that night to come. Right. Yeah, you know, seriously. those kind of things. Like he must not, have not, a million things on his plate. So. No, not, not that it's like, wow, why would he pick you? But like he was free that night. You had that dinner that night and it kind of all worked out from there. So I know Sonny has a question about a hashtag, which you're, which you use a lot. Well, I, I, of course I had to follow you and see, and I just noticed you use the farm, like the world depends on it. Of course, we've talked a lot about you know, that too, but I just know, I wondered if there was anything you wanted to add to that and what that means to you and how that got started. And I, I happen to love it. <laughs> I, I totally love it. Also, it's the slogan for the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Oh, so okay. That's their, that's their, that's their kind of tagline is farm like the world depends on it. Gotcha. And, and I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Thanks. So um, I have a question actually. So do you think that California is way ahead of the United, the rest of the United States? I mean, you are the only certified regenerative 
organics at the moment, but do you see California viticulture very far ahead of the rest of the United States? No, not particularly. Um, I mean, I think maybe the California consumer is a little ahead of the average consumer in the United States, but I don't Mm -hmm. actually, I bet if you, I bet if you looked at the percentage of California vineyards that were certified organic and compared to, compared that to the percentage of vineyards nationally, I don't think we would be much different. Um, I mean, I know that there's certainly lots of producers up in Oregon who are leading the charge on this. I also know that there are producers in, in upstate New York and in Virginia. Um, I don't think the penetration of organic farming into the world of wine is all that advanced anywhere in the United States. The the percentage of vineyards that are certified organic in America is like a third or a quarter of what it is in Europe um, by, by percentage. So I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of catching up, honestly, that, that American viticulture has to do on, um, I do see more interest in it than I ever have before, certainly based on the number of inquiries that we've gotten since the regenerative organic certification came out. Um, I mean, we're hearing from, we're hearing from multiple vineyards and wineries every week wanting to come and see what we're doing and, and talk to the, talk to our viticulturists, talk to our shepherd, talk to, talk to us as to what parts of that process were hardest and which parts seemed most valuable and what they should be aware of as they, as they look to pursue it. So I think there's a ton of interest out there, but -hmm. I think it's still pretty early stages, no matter where you look in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess France, even though Spain has a lot of organic farms too, I'm not sure which one of the three big European countries, France, Italy, or Spain is ahead in terms of their organic certifications and, producers do either of you guys know i think the last i read was italy but you know it always constantly probably changes um but i think italy is ahead as as of right now but i don't know and even then i believe that there i think all of those all of those countries are somewhere in like the eight to twelve percent of their vineyards are are organic whereas in the united states it's like three percent so it's i mean we're not talking big numbers in either in either case it needs to be bigger yeah yes absolutely So we had a guest last week that we were talking about uh, to who was saying that she fears that with climate change, it may actually be harder to do organic viticulture. Do you think that? Do you see that for certain of her grape varieties? She thought. I don't see why that would necessarily be true. Um, The, I mean, the things that, that make organic, grape growing difficult are not things I would think that would particularly be impacted by climate change. I mean, you have, it's hard to deal with moisture. It's hard to deal with weeds. I mean, those are both things, at least in California, as as climate change progresses, it gets drier and hotter, which means that things like mildew are are less of a problem, not more of a problem. Um, So, I mean, you do maybe get a little less, if you get less winter rainfall, that's less cover crop growth. It's probably going to be a little harder for um, some of the insect species that we, that we rely on. I mean, uh, but I think, I I, I don't see a direct, uh, a direct connection between climate change and making organic, organic viticulture more difficult. I think, I think she was what, maybe talking more about the very irregular weather patterns, like, you know, frost right now in France that destroyed, I mean, very sort of unusual 
um, you know, cold weather, and then all of a sudden hail when you're not expecting it and, and things like that. I don't know if that happens. Obviously, in California, you have the wildfires and you have all these different things you have to deal with. I was curious about what you feel about that. Like, how are you adapting to, because we always talk about climate change in this series, of course, it's a big part of it. Um, what your plans are, if how you feel maybe the run varietals will fare going forward in, in your area in, in Paso Robles. So that's a, that's an important important distinction. I think it's definitely going to make viticulture more difficult, but I don't think it's going to make organic viticulture more difficult than conventional viticulture. Um, there are for sure a ton of challenges that climate change presents to grape growing. I think Rhone varieties are probably fairly well positioned because they're from hotter, drier parts of Europe compared to say things that might come from Burgundy or from the Loire or from Germany or, or Alsace. Um, so I'm less maybe worried about that than I am about long-term challenges with water, which are going to impact everything. Um, in order to, to kind of hedge for us against that, a lot of what we've been doing is trying to move towards, move towards dry farming. So instead of planting, knowing that we're going to need to irrigate, which is going to rely on groundwater sources that I think are going to become more and more competitive and, and likely replenish more slowly if it, if it gets drier in the future. We've been planting, um, looking back to very old models, planting wider space. So instead of like 1800 vines an acre, plant 500 vines an acre, give the vines more cubic yards of soil, give them more ability to find what they need. They build deeper root systems that way. Um, they become less susceptible to heat spikes because so much of their root system is down so deep that they barely even notice what's going on at the surface. Um, and then you're, you're able to give them the, the resources that they need just from what falls from the sky. So if you, if you think you're reducing your vine density by 70%, um, so even if you get 20% less rainfall in 50 years than we get now, you're still setting up the vines to, to be successful. Um, whereas if you're planting at the same density and you're figuring, oh, we can just make up for that that 20% less rainfall by irrigating 20% more when everybody's thinking the same thing and there's less water going in to recharge those underground water systems. Um, that's a, that's likely to be a recipe that's, that's going to cause a lot of problems. Mm. Um, the other things that we're doing is we're trying to really build the carbon content of our soil because that increases the water holding capacity of the soil enormously. Um, so that's a big piece of the animal. The, the, the flock of sheep that we have is that they return 80% of the carbon that they eat to the, the ground in the form of their manure. Their sheep are relatively inefficient grazers, which is one of the reasons they're good for this. So all of that, all of that carbon content that's going back into the soil also helps the soil hold more water. So building up your topsoil is a way, again, of kind of hedging against a drier future. And then finally, we're doing things like um, replacing burn piles with biochar. So instead of just burning like vine clippings and, and other things that need to be, need to be taken care of, we're turning, turning it into biochar, which is this essentially um, kind of natural form of charcoal that is again, very durable in the soil that acts as kind of a soil amendment and helps it hold more, helps it hold more water and, and helps it helps the vines that are in it access the nutrients that are there better. Um, and then I guess one more thing that we're doing is we are using that flock of sheep when they can't be in the vineyard in the, in the summer, because they will happily eat the leaves and the <laughs> clusters. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, 
we are working with our neighbors so that they graze the forest understory. So um, that reduces our fire risk um, since that accumulation of kind of dried up organic matter at the, at the, at the surface is one of the things that means that fires um, build in intensity and spread faster. So the more that we can, we can mitigate that, the, the, the safer we feel. Mm. Really interesting. That is really interesting. All of that. I've actually, I don't, I don't really know anything about biochar. So it's, what is biochar? It's a kind of a charcoal? Yeah, it's, it's essentially, it's created from the incomplete burning of wood. So okay, um, so you're basically, you're not turning it all the way to ash. You're essentially okay. smothering the fire when it's kind of uh-huh. half burned. And uh-huh. in the same way that like you might get a charcoal briquette to do a grill with, um, there's still a lot of carbon that's captured in there, but it's in a form that, that breaks down very slowly. So okay. a lot of the way that, um, particularly like California, California climate built a lot of the, or- the, the durable organic matter in their soils was from wildfires that would come through. And when a tree would fall down, it would smother the, the fire at the bottom and that would slowly turn to biochar. And then as the, that fire got put out just by nature, by the rain at the end of the, that growing right. season, then that would break down into the soil. And over the course of millennia, you end up with a lot of this organic matter in the soil that when people clear that land and start farming, it starts to get depleted. So this is a way of essentially replenishing what would have been a natural, a natural amendment um, on a periodic basis with a, with a, a conscious process. Wow. That's really fascinating. So I know our time is limited. I just have maybe one more question for you. And it's about um, if you're feeling optimistic about, consumers looking for producers to farm in a more organic, regenerative and sustainable way? Are you, far, are you finding that from the consumer perspective? Are, are consumers asking that of you? I think consumers are largely baffled by the different descriptions of people's farming practices. Everybody wants to know that the, that the not everybody, that a, a large number, a large and growing number of consumers want to know that the, the wines that they're buying are farmed in a, in a way that, that they could support. But I don't feel like the labeling regulations really make that easy for people. And I feel like the proliferation of sustainability certifications has in many cases made it more obscure, not less. Um, so. I, I know that the reactions that we've gotten from our, our own customers, our own wine club members, our visitors, um, as we explain the things that we're doing have been incredibly enthusiastic. And yeah. I mean, gratifying. and you're doing so many things that are really exciting. So that's great. But how does somebody who is not in direct contact with their, with their wineries know what those wineries are doing? I, I think it's, I think it's really hard. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that I feel like the regenerative organic certification does offer. I mean, this will be the first certification that we actually put on the label um, because we feel like it's so meaningful that it's worth jumping through the hoops that you need to, to get it on the label. And it's, I mean, it's broad and it's rigorous. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think it's something that if people see, they can really trust that it will mean it will mean what it seems like it should mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that's a longer term process and we're not going to yeah. have the ability to have those because I mean, that, that has the, the whole vintage has to be produced under 
your certification. So we're not going to have the opportunity to do that until the 2021 vintage. So that's still a year or two away before we'll have those wines labeled in the market. Um, but it'll require, it'll require kind of connecting the dots for people. And I mean, we, we know that we're going to have a role to play in that. And we look forward to that, that process, but I don't think it's been particularly easy up until this point. So as much as there's the desire that's out there, um, it's, it's, I think it's been hard for, for people to really know. Very exciting to hear all the creative things you're doing. So wish you best of success going forward. And so appreciative that you took time out to talk with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you and find out all the amazing things that you're doing. I knew from when I have talked to you before that you were doing some things, but I didn't know the extent to which you're doing all these things. So (laughs) that was really inspiring and complicated and fascinating. So thank you. I'm so glad you accepted our invitation to come chat with us. You're, you're so you. welcome. Can I can I give a little plug to our blog if people want yes, to? Yes, please, to please, absolutely. You can do and as many plugs as you want. <laughs> <laughs> one one or two will do, uh, but yeah, basically, if people if people want to know more about our journey along this path and want to know the things that keep me up at night and want to know the things that get our viticulturist excited, want to see pictures of the sheep and and the alpacas and all of the stuff that we're doing, um, we, we've kept a blog for the last 15 years, so basically a pretty much weekly post now for 15 years. So um, you can find that linked off of the Tablas Creek website. It's just tablascreek.com. Um, and, and if you have, you have thoughts, you have feedback, you have things you'd like to, like to see or hear from us, just let us know. We're, we, we, always, we always love to hear from people. Great. And I think you also have a podcast. Am I wrong? We don't have a podcast. I've started doing um, every other Wednesday Instagram live conversations. So it's sort of like a pod, it's sort of podcast style, right. um, but it's not a, it, we haven't yet at least turned it into a podcast that you could download anywhere other than on, in your Instagram feed, but. Okay, um, great. But we can find it in your IGTV. Yep. IGTV. And we do, our winemaker does um, live tastings on Facebook with guests also. So we're, we're at Tablas Creek on all of the social media channels. Great. Great. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. So tune in next week as we speak with Michael Drapkin of Kingston Wine Company, a retailer from upstate New York. We'll get his take on what customers are asking for and how retailers are responding to customer requests. Thanks for joining us here at the Vigneto Podcasts. Our podcasts always drop on Fridays. We hope you're listening. Thank you so much. This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil.